I'm really going to try to uh, answer these two questions. Why does energy demand matter? Um, and how much difference can it make to delivering carbon targets? And as many of you will know, um, our government has some very ambitious tar carbon targets to reduce carbon emissions from this country by 80% um, by 2050. And that's about the scale of reduction that is needed in the developed world as a whole, if we're going to reach, this, if we're going to uh, prevent climate change, uh, global average temperature rising by uh, more than two degrees by the middle of the century, which is the sort of range that um, climate scientists believe may be um, dangerous um, for the basic systems of the planet. So that's why it's important. Um, I've always been told that when I'm talking to a non-technical audience, the one thing I really must do is avoid using any equations. So I'm going to start with an equation because I like breaking the rules. Um, but be warned, it, it, it's the only one for those of you who, are, who, who don't like this sort of thing. Um, and it's really to explain what we can do to decarbonise uh, an, an economy. Um, if we want to decarbonise an economy without uh, reducing GDP, and actually we've been quite successful in decarbonising, partly decarbonising the economy by reducing GDP over the last few years, but that's assumed not to be the, uh, the policy goal. Then uh, that simple identity at the top, what carbon, how, how carbon emissions uh, can be calculated, tells you there's only two ways to do it. You can either reduce the factor C over E, which is the ratio of carbon emissions to the energy we use, which is by changing fuels, and that's the sort of thing that Steve and Henry are talking about later on. Or we can change the ratio E over GDP, how much energy we need to produce each unit of GDP, which, crudely speaking, is the energy intensity of the, uh, of the economy, roughly speaking, uh, the inverse of energy efficiency. So in essence, there are only two ways to decarbonise a growing economy. We can change the fuels we use, the carbon ratio, or we can improve energy efficiency, the energy ratio. Um, I thought I'd show you how we were doing uh, globally in, 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 in that, uh, along that uh, track over recent years. Um, so the red line is the carbon to GDP ratio, which is the, the product of, the, of the, the green line and the blue line. And what you can see is that um, the energy to GDP ratio has gone down pretty steadily uh, since um, 1970. Um, virtually all talks on energy started in 1970 because that was when the oil crisis started happening. We don't really know much about what happened with energy before that. But the, the carbon ratio has only gone down mildly, and, and in fact, in recent years, it's started to go up again, uh, which is a bit worrying when you think we're trying to reduce carbon emissions globally. 
And the reason for that really is that uh, China and India are industrializing very quickly, particularly over the last decade, and their economy is heavily based on coal, which is the most carbon-intensive fuel. So we're actually doing extremely badly in, in reducing the carbon ratio, and moderately well in, in reducing the energy ratio. That's globally. What about the UK? Um, well, a fairly similar picture. Um, we've, we've done a bit better um, in uh, reducing the carbon to energy ratio, though again, it's started to drift up in recent years, despite all the efforts to introduce renewable energy into the economy. We're burning more coal in power stations and a bit less gas in recent years, so that's gone up. The E to GDP ratio, pretty the same as, as, as the rest of the world, improving is about 3% annually over the last um, few years. Um, and that's really then driving uh, the carbon to GDP ratio. How do we expect that to change in future? Well, how do other people expect it to change in future? Well, I'm going to tell you in particular how the Committee on Climate Change expect these ratios to change up to 2050, and they've modelled scenarios that deliver the 50%, uh, the 80% carbon uh, reduction by 2050. And their model projection is that the E to GDP ratio keeps on going down, it's about 3% a year, about the rate we're doing at the moment. And the carbon to energy ratio stops going up, starts going down, then it goes down quicker, and then it goes down a bit more, more quickly, and then it goes down even quicker still. And it ends up going down at about 10% a year, uh, which is a number that no one has ever achieved anywhere in the history of the world, as far as I can tell. I, I stand to be corrected on that, but I've said that to a few people and no one's produced a counterexample. Um, it's, uh, it, 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 in the words of Yes Minister, it's a brave policy um, to assume that we will achieve that. Um, so we are headed into the unknown. Um, it's to be hoped that either PV or fusion begins to deliver in large amounts by 2050, otherwise I think we will be pushed to reach that sort of target. So what does this tell us? It tells us that current decarbonisation plans are very ambitious. Um, especially for the, the carbon ratio. It tells us that the demand side had a key role to play. That's obvious in the sense of improving energy efficiency, but also if we're to go on changing the carbon ratio, we not only start to need wind turbines and photovoltaics and nuclear to decarbonise electricity, but we also have to start to decarbonise heat and transport as well. And that involves changes on the demand side, whether it's electric vehicles or different fuels for, for home heating. So the demand side's got a big role to play in this whole story out to 2050. And I think from that last chart that I showed you, it does make sense, at least as an insurance policy, to try to improve energy efficiency faster than 3% a year. Because it, the faster we can improve energy efficiency, the less ambitious, the less we rely on those extremely ambitious targets for decarbonising the energy sector. And because we've got a better track record in improving energy efficiency, you might think, and I do think, um, that there's probably more chance of us delivering on energy efficiency than on decarbonising the whole of the energy supply sector. Future speakers may disagree with that. That would be an interesting sort of question, I expect. <coughs> So I hope we've convinced you that um, 
energy efficiency is important uh, in, in, in this game, and it's not just the, the big, sexy technologies of renewables and nuclear that we should be looking at. Um, what I want to go on to talk about is a piece of work um, that I've been involved with over the last two or three years as part of the UK Energy Research Centre, which has been trying to ask some quantified questions. Well, how much could we reduce energy demand? If we're optimistic, how, how, how well could we do? This is now in a book published by Earthscan, so you can buy it if you want the full details. Um, and I should pay credit to my colleagues, um, Christian Brandon and Russell Avery, and also colleagues in other universities, Julian Annabelle and Neil Strachan, who were involved in this piece of work too, and did the book the model, I have to say. And what we did was looked at what we called an energy lifestyle scenario, where people begin to take their energy use seriously. I mean, that's sweeping statement, but actually people don't take their energy use very seriously at the moment. Most people don't know how much they use, and even if they do, they don't care too much. Um, what do we mean by lifestyles? Well, the definition of lifestyle is, is, is difficult, but and different people define it in different ways, but it's used to do with consumption patterns, different cultures, the social values that people have, what people think is an acceptable behaviour. Yeah. My parents' generation will switch lights off when they went out, or my children's generation doesn't. These things change over time in one direction or another. So it's about personal preferences, but it's about broader culture as well. It's about how we use our time, how we use the spaces uh, that we live and work in. <coughs> As I say, it's difficult to define, but, but you sort of know a lifestyle when you see one. Um, this picture wasn't taken in this country, needless to say. Um, it was obviously taken in the United States of America because nobody would behave in such a fashion in Europe. Um, so, in a sense, our lifestyles project was not to look at that lifestyle, it was to look at the opposite lifestyle to that, a sort of sensible progression towards a world where people are thinking more about using energy uh, rationally in a way that might improve their health better than this gentleman is doing. I've always assumed it's a man, but I can't prove that. Um, so that, that's, that, that's what we're thinking about in, 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 in this project. So our storyline was that people care about climate change, they realise that energy use, their own energy use is something that they can act on and should act on. There's reduced emphasis on, on conspicuous consumption. People start to care about the greenness of their housing. Um, they start to desire to travel less, to have a better life by travelling less. I certainly have a better life working in Oxford than I did when I commuted to London. So this is not an, an impossible scenario. They're supportive of new green technologies, and they elect politicians who help make these things happen through supportive policies and infrastructure. We looked at household energy use and personal transport. That's not to say thing, people can't do things at, at, at work, but we have to draw the boundaries somewhere. And we looked at changes that we thought were broadly credible. Um, we think that if somewhere, if someone's, if a, a part of the OECD is behaving in a fashion at the moment, it's credible to think that we in the UK could behave that way in the future. For example, we could have the take of cycling that there is in the Netherlands, or at least in Denmark. Those, those are the sorts of changes we're, we're postulating. Um, 
sometimes quite major changes, but not, um, not beyond the realms of possibility. Um, I won't say much about how we did the detailed modelling. I think I'm going to ask you to take on trust that we did the, 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 the sums properly. Um, but essentially, we were trying to compare it against more mainstream scenarios. So we, we, we took mainstream assumptions for income, population, and GDP, and just looked at changes in attitudes, preferences, uh, and, 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 and consumption patterns. We ran the assumptions through very detailed uh, models that, that my colleagues uh, in the Environmental Change Institute run to work out the energy demands and then we put those energy demands into a bigger system model that colleagues at University College London uh, run to work out the implications for the energy sector as a whole. And we ran two such scenarios, both LS for lifestyle, but a reference case, but then also a case where carbon can, carbon was required to reach the 80% reduction target that the government has for 2050. So when I show you some uh, graphs for in the future, you'll see two diagrams, and those correspond to the two particular scenarios. Let me say in a little bit more detail about the sorts of things we assumed. Um, in the household sector, um, we assume that um, internal temperatures didn't go on rising as they've done for 30 or 40 or probably longer than that, 50 years now, um, but, but stabilised or slightly went down to the sorts of levels we had in the mid 1990s on average. There's no one freezing in the cold in these scenarios, is what I have to say, but we aren't just ramping up the heating and then putting on air conditioning as well. Um, Hot water use fell slightly to levels typical of, uh, of other EU countries. We use more hot water in this country than the French and the Germans for reasons I've never quite understood. So presumably, we could use a little bit less. And the growth in lights and appliances <coughs> rose for a few years, but then stabilised. So the, the, the multiplication of electronics <coughs> stopped. Uh, the, the, the number of televisions per house stabilised at about three, which is what it is at the moment. Instead, now, having done this work for a long time, I should say we once ran a projection where we thought that stabilisation of television ownership meant one per household. But it just shows how wrong you can be in this sort of work. Um, and we assume that people <coughs> chose different technologies as well. So the insulation of the housing stock became universal. Good insulation of the housing stock became universal. As people replaced their heating systems over time, there was great use of wood, of combined heat and power, of heat pumps. Um, we slowly moved towards using advanced technologies for appliances, which did something like halve the energy use of refrigerators and washing machines. <coughs> And microgeneration, that's PV panels on our roofs, small wind turbines, become widespread. Not universal, we're not saying a, a solar panel on every roof, but we are saying that a substantial proportion, 15 to 20 percent, households might have that sort of technology. So, so perhaps you might think optimistic, but I would say not unrealistic uh, uh, assumptions for an ambitious scenario. The same sort of approach in transport, where we assume that the world sort of responds to the sorts of initiatives we're already seeing, which are listed there down the left-hand side, 
planning policies that emphasise accessibility and localism without people having to move huge distances, slower speeds, not an unrealistic projection we're already seeing, 20 mile an hour speed limits in this city, more compact cities, more car-free zones, greater use of car clubs, and then more intelligent use of ICT, so greater teleworking, greater teleshopping, the sorts of trends that, again, we're beginning to see happening. Perhaps more controversially, a bit less air travel, or at least air travel, uh, the growth in air, air travel um, stabilizers. And the, the effect of each one of those changes is relatively small, and that's why people tend to ignore them when they look at energy futures. But the effect of all of them put together can be quite significant. And we calculated that an uptake of those sorts of technologies at reasonable rates meant that the total travelling distance could fall by more than 20%, by 2050, with a substantial modal shift um, from cars to both public transport and the so-called slow modes, cycling and walking, though I note that cycling is still quicker means of getting around this city than any other means. Um, and vehicle choice changes substantially to pr primarily electric vehicles by 2050, which I think is now uh, thought to be uh, quite likely. People also drive better, that just mean faster, it means better, and they say 5%. Uh, you can easily say 5% by, by, by driving better. And share more so that car occupancy levels rise. They can't go on falling. Do you know that if car occupancy levels go on changing at the current rate, there is less than one person per vehicle? <laughs> so a business as usual scenario does seem unlikely. <laughs> um, What's the result of all this in, uh, for, for the energy system? Well, for household demand, the co the, um, I'm showing there um, the, uh, the, the total household demand split into space heating, water <coughs> heating, and, and lights and appliances. We see the energy demand um, peaks before today. It has. Energy demand in UK households is already falling, has fallen for the last five years. We see that trend continue, um, and in space heating, in water heating, and in appliance use. And the overall effect of all the changes is quite significant, perhaps a 30% reduction in household energy demand by 2050. The biggest contribution to that is insulating our houses. Um, even if we insulated them at German or Scandinavian levels now, we'd be making a substantial contribution in that direction. The impacts on household heating are even more uh, stark. Um, at the moment, we have a household heating sector that's dominated by gas boilers, as you would expect. Um, but if I'd been standing here 50 years ago, you wouldn't have expected that. You'd have expected household heating to be dominated by coal. So these sort of transitions do happen. And what we're seeing in this scenario, and the, 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 the two variants of it that I described, <coughs> is that we've got gas being used in units and boilers, still in reasonable amounts. But we've also got greater use of heat pumps, of biomass, and of solar heating for, 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 for water. But of course the most spectacular change is that the total amount 
is changed substantially. That's the insulation phase. And it makes adopting these technologies much easier if there's less energy um, for them, uh, to, for less energy demand for them to meet. A similar effect in, 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 in transport, our transport demand, as you would expect, is currently dominated by um, petrol and diesel. In the two lifestyle scenarios, um, slightly different patterns, but in both cases, the main effect is a fall in demand, a rise in electricity use in electric vehicles, which is the yellow bar. That, that's the energy use. It slightly underplays how many electric vehicles there are in these scenarios because electric vehicles are much more individually efficient. You've got over half the vehicles, right? But we're using much less than half the energy of the sector. And in a sector where we really, really need to reduce our carbon emissions, then greater use of biofuels as well. Um, and in that case, um, petrol and diesel demand down by, you know, roughly speaking, in order of magnitude. If you believe in peak oil, and many people do, then you may need to do that for reasons other than carbon emissions uh, reduction on this sort of time scale anyway. What are the impacts on the overall energy system? Um, this is final energy <coughs> demand by fuel in the UK. The 2000 numbers are there, red for the electricity, green is gas in the uh, the line pale blue are uh, petrol and diesel. That's how we use our um, uh, our energy at the moment. Um, and the pattern in 2050 is not too different. We're not making massively radical changes. The biggest effect is a reduction by about 30 percent. A little more electricity being used because what we're seeing is electricity being used much more efficiently, but actually electricity being used for more things. More use in that of electricity for incomes, heating, more use of electricity in vehicles. And so the big reductions in demand are in gas and in oil. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think this is maybe a, a, a more credible scenario than you might think to start with, because what are the big, what's the biggest driver for energy policy? Carbon emissions reduction gets talked about most. But if you're the energy minister, the thing you worry most about is the lights going out. You lose your job if the lights go out. You just get a bit of stick if we don't meet our carbon targets. So energy security is always going to be a major driver <coughs> of, of, of energy policy. And where are the big energy security threats externally to this country? Well, I guess. So this is not only improving uh, our carbon performance, it's increasing the security of our energy system quite, quite substantially if we can go down this sort of route. So my conclusions are that lifestyle change coupled with technology change and the two naturally go together because in these sectors I've been talking about it's people who are choosing technologies can produce a combination of both demand reduction and efficiency improvement that reduce energy demand in homes and transport by about 50% below current levels and below what most people would think a baseline level is in 2050. And because those two sectors now contribute two-thirds of our, are responsible for two-thirds of our final energy demand, they reduce national energy use and carbon emissions 
by about 30% below the baseline by 2050. Let me emphasize it's not 80%. Yeah, we can't change our lifestyles and, and, and solve climate change solely that way. We're going to need substantial improvements in, in technology and electricity supply as well. But it's a significant contribution. It means that the increase of electricity takes a, uh, a significant increase in final energy demand um, and perhaps more electricity used even though overall energy demand is falling. So the next two talks are, they'll be pleased to know, still very relevant even in this, uh, this sort of scenario. And perhaps most startling of all, it reduces the cost of delivering a low carbon energy system by about 70 billion. Um, when we first worked that out, that number, we, we thought, well, that must be 70 billion over 50 years. No, it's 70 billion each year in 2050. That's what? 3,000 pounds a household? It's a lot of money. Right. It makes a lot of sense economically as well as environmentally to go down that And as I said, it, it also uh, potentially um, reduces energy the the energy, uh, the vulnerability of the energy system to external shocks on it. So it really meets most of the ticks for, for, for energy policy in terms of carbon emissions, energy security, and cost. Um, the only problem is we have to persuade 60 million people to do all the things which are the input assumptions to this. That's probably at least 10 other talks for 10 other days, but it is. It does look like changing the way that we live is an important part of the future energy system. Thanks. Nice to be here. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about fusion energy. Um, just up the road is the um, world's largest and most uh, um, impressive fusion energy experiment. And I, I'm going to first talk about why why fusion is so important. What what is its promise? I'm going to talk about what we're doing. Tell you a little bit about the science we're in the middle of at the moment. Um, and then I'm going to talk about what a fusion reactor would look like. Um, fusion's been around since 1920 when Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington said that uh, the sun was being powered by some internal energy source, which was the fusing of hydrogen atoms to make helium atoms. And since then, we've been struggling to find a way to tap that energy source. And it isn't easy. And there's a joke... So I'll tell it first before somebody tells it to me in the audience, which is that fusion is always 30 years away and always will be. Um, that can't be true. We've made a very substantial progress um, towards, um, towards actually achieving fusion energy, and we can actually make fusion happen. What I don't know yet is if we can make it at a cost and a reliability that will make it to the market and to be something that provides baseload energy. Let's just start with a few numbers. A litre of petrol 
a litre of petrol will give you 9.7 kilowatt hours of energy. Uh, you consume, debatable, but somewhere around 200 kilowatt hours of energy in different forms, all kinds of mixed forms, um, every day. Not just the energy you actually pay for, but the stuff that goes towards making your food, etc., etc. About 20 litres of petrol a day. Take a litre of seawater. Seawater is actually very interesting stuff. All kinds of stuff in there. Uranium, lithium, deuterium, all kinds of exotic things. Inside a litre of, of um, seawater, there's 0.2 milligrams of lithium. Some people say it's why you feel better after drinking seawater than fresh water. But anyway, there's also 33 milligrams of deuterium. If you took that lithium and you used it in a fusion reactor, this liter of seawater, I don't know it's seawater actually, I just took a picture of a liter of water off the, um, off the internet, but it, 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 if it were a liter of seawater and you could take that lithium and you had a fusion reactor in which to process it, you could make a kilowatt hour out of one liter of, um, of seawater. So one litre of seawater has the energy potential in a fusion reactor of one-tenth of a litre of oil, of gasoline. Um, which means that basically you need about 200 litres of seawater per day per person. That's a bath full of seawater per day. There's an awful lot of seawater. I think there's uh, 100 billion, billion litres of seawater in the ocean. There are more difficult fusion reactions, and the more difficult fusion reaction, that one between deuterium and deuterium, will give you a thousand kilowatt hours per liter of seawater. So much more than gasoline, in fact. And if we get really good at fusion, we'll do that one as well. But actually, fusion is really hard. It's a great way to make energy, except one thing. It's a phenomenally hard way to make energy. And we've made progress over 15 years, but you know, we're not quite there yet. Um, we are there in terms of actually making fusion reactions, and we're making a big step. The whole world is making a big step. They're making a step towards actually producing a fusion reactor that will make substantially more energy than it consumes. That's obviously something you want. Uh, and not only that, it'll make it at the industrial scale. It's actually a prototype for a reactor without actually making electricity from it. It's called ITER. It used to be an acronym, but we took the um, dots out of the acronym, and now it's, it's a word, apparently in Latin, the way. It's half a gigawatt of fusion power will come out of this device when it's working. And so it's basically on the scale of the power station. One of the unfortunate things about fusion is we don't know how to do it despite the cold fusion stuff and all the things in the newspapers and stuff, we don't know how to do fusion on small scales. We only know how to do it on large scales. And this has been the big impediment, essentially, to development in fusion. You have to persuade an awful lot of people to build an experiment of this size because it's going to cost more than 10 billion euros. So you have to be pretty certain you're going to actually successfully get into this regime. But in the middle of this... Fusion reactions are going on, I'm going to tell you what they are in a moment. Fusion reactions are going on at copious amounts, generating phenomenal heat. And the central temperature in this device will be about 230 million degrees. Sustained 
by magnetic fields created by this huge superconducting magnet, so there's the size of your canonical European person, huge superconducting magnets that get contained at that um, temperature. Round about 20, end of 2019, 2020, this machine will turn on. And sometime a few years later, probably three, four, five years later, will be the first real fusion shots. When this thing will light up, if we get things just right, and it's on the verge of this, it will be completely self-sustaining. Uh, so in fact, we'll be shoveling in fusion fuel, it will be heating itself, keeping itself, burning fusion fuel, and producing this energy without any energy going in. But we've defined set as success. What is success? <laughs> success as Q greater than 10. That means 10 times as much energy as, uh, comes out as goes in. That's success. But actually, I don't think this machine will be truly successful until we get to the point at which we have to put no energy in at all and we just get energy out. So that will happen sometime during the 2020s. I like to say fusion is perfect energy, but, you know, if you haven't done it, it looks great. Um. So there's one, there's, I used to give a, until I had to run a big lab, I used to give a, a, a talk called Fusion, God's Little Joke, because there are several things about this that make it very, very close to reality, uh, to being easy to achieve, and that's just a little bit off being easy, fusion. And the one, one of them is that we were given a, re a fusion reaction that's a hundred times easier than all the others. It just involves exotic things. So it's the reaction between two kinds of hydrogen, which is deuterium, which you find in seawater, it's, it's up, up there, and I've denoted a proton that's green, and a neutron that's blue. They are blue, <coughs> but, um, uh, Deuterium and tritium here, which is another kind of hydrogen. If you bring them together, for a moment, they'll make helium-5. got five particles inside it. Then it'll split up into ordinary helium, which is that thing that says 3.5 megavolts of energy coming out of it, helium, and a neutron. And the reason why I say it's a little bit of a joke on God's part, it makes it hard, is that tritium does not exist in nature. It decays in 12 years and goes away. You can find deuterium in seawater, 33 milligrams <coughs> per litre, but you won't find tritium anywhere. You have to make your tritium. So you take that neutron that comes out and bombard lithium, and the lithium splits up into tritium and helium, and you take that tritium and you put it back in. And that's what makes it a little bit off being perfect. Right? So this is the reaction that's 100 times easier to do than any other. But when I say it's 100 times easier, it's very hard. Because you've got to bring together deuterium and tritium, which naturally repel each other until they get very close. Because they're both positively charged particles. And so light charges repel. So if you want to get deuterium and tritium together, you have to push them together until they get very close. And then... The nuclear forces that bind the nucleus together, grab them, pull them together, assemble the helium-5 for an instant. That's the helium-5 right there. Splits up into the helium and the neutron, kicks them out, and with it, lots of kinetic energy in the particles, and that's the heat that you can get out of fusion. 
But you, in order to do it, you've got to push them together. Now, you don't have tweezers to push deuterium and tritium together, so how do you do it? What you do is you take deuterium and tritium in gas form and you heat them up. And you heat them up to about 200 million degrees. In the centre of our device, we regularly go above 150 million degrees in jet at color. Then the particles are moving around randomly. Every now and again, they slam into each other. Most of the time, they'll just, they'll just um, scatter off each other like this. There's deuterium and tritium scattering off each other. But if they come in hard enough towards each other, they come in close enough that nuclear force can grab them. And then the reaction will happen. So if they're moving fast enough, they'll come in like this. <laughs> I don't know. My PR people put that noise on there. <laughs> it does it every time. It always makes me laugh. Um, and, and, and it releases its energy by the kinetic energy of those particles coming in. But first of all, you know, not every collision happens like that. And secondly, you've got to have the things moving fast enough that will do it, which means it's got to have heat temperature. So it's got to be at about 200 million degrees. And it's really difficult to imagine how you hold anything at 200 million degrees. Because if it touches the walls, the walls will get hot and it will get cold. And the only way that we've been able to really assemble something at about 200 million degrees is by holding it in magnetic fields. If you've got something at 200 million degrees and it's all whizzing around, they're all charged particles. So magnetic fields will be able to push on them. And if you can hold it away from the walls with magnetic field, it doesn't touch the walls, the heat won't conduct to the walls. You can then heat it up, and we heat it up by passing electric fields or current through it, and we heat it up by bombarding it with other particles. And in the machine at Cullum, we heat it up from basically room temperature all the way up to 150, 170 million degrees. And when it gets there, the particles are moving fast enough and the fusion reactions start to happen. When that happens, the fusion reactions will start to heat the plasma themselves. So they will be providing the heat that's necessary to keep it warm. Now, when we first did this back in the 1950s, we didn't get very far. And we didn't get very far because you're trying to hold something that's like a wriggly piece of jelly with lines of magnetic field that are supporting it. And it's a bit like really trying to hold jelly with knitting wool. It's not very easy to do. And for a long time it threw itself against the wall. And we could never get the temperature above you know, the sort of the temperature you get in the fluorescent light bulb. But by the end of the 60s temperatures had got up to just uh, you know, a few million degrees. And by the end of the 70s we got up to the tens of million degrees. And by 1997, um, at Cullen, we got up into, into 150, 170, 200 million degrees. And we were ready to actually do some fusion experiments. And the trick was being able to carefully construct a cage of magnetic field that would actually confine this um, hot gas, which we call a plasma, at, at about 150 million degrees. So... Well, normally, we don't put tritium inside the device. It's expensive. It costs 30 million a kilogram, and you don't want to use it up. And secondly, it decays, and so it's uh, radioactive gas. Um, but when we got to these kind of performance levels, we actually started running the uh, jet with uh, tritium inside it. 
So here's a picture of Jetty's that come down the road. Um, it's the laboratory that I am the director of. Um, and this is a, a person. When you stand next to Jetty, it looks a lot bigger than that, actually. But it is like, a, a donut-shaped hull with magnetic field around it, holding it all together. It's, a, it's basically ETA, one half the size of what ETA will be. Here we have time along the bottom here, and this was the measured amount of fusion power coming out. Now, at full power, jet can do about five to six seconds. That's all you can do, because the machine gets hot on that time. The coils that make the magnetic field get hot, because they're not superconducting coils as they will be on, on ETA. So we can only run it for five seconds. ETA will be able to run for thousands and thousands of seconds. But jet will only run for five or so seconds. So, for instance, here was probably the most important shot, which was we mounted up, we made about 4.5 megawatts of fusion power, and we shut it off and turned it down. Perfectly controlled. We got it up to the temperatures, of, I think there was 170 million degrees. But what was very tantalizing was we were able to make much more power than that. Right? We were able to make 16 megawatts of power. Here we ramped it up. And it shut up to about 16 megawatts of power, but unfortunately threw itself against the wall at that point. Um, we've learned something since then. And so we're going to be allowed and encouraged to put some tritium back in the machine in the next few years and beat these records. This is th these are the records for fusion power coming out of the device. I have to say, we were putting it in slightly more than 16 <coughs> megawatts, about 20 megawatts, of 22 megawatts, actually, in the interest of honesty, um, in order to get 16 megawatts out. Um, but since that time, we've improved the machine. And we just had the machine shut down for about a year and a half while we put in a new tungsten beryllium wall in, inside the machine. And we just started it up, actually, about a few days ago. And we're slowly ramping it up in power to head for some new shots. There's very excited physicists looking at that 16 megawatt <laughs> shot. <laughs> Actually, they don't look that excited, do they? Really? <laughs> um, and by the way, this, this here, this uh, just over 10, is the American record, and this is our record. <laughs> <laughs> so the predictions from the codes at this point are what's going to happen in 2015 is we're going to be able to ramp up to uh, over the 16 megawatts, hold it there, and bring it down. That's the middle of the predictions. You can see the error bar in the predictions, so it could only get to you know, 12 and hold it, or 23, I think, and hold it is the upper bound on that. So what we're aiming to do is to produce the same kind of sustained shock for the whole time at this kind of uh, fusion power. That's basically as, as good as JET is able to do, because it's not big enough. We actually have to have a bigger device in order to get to the point of itself sustaining, and that's why we're building, again, this device, ETA. ETA being bigger means that the, the heat that leaks out through the magnetic field has to leak out further. Sort of as simple as that. I mean, I put some mathematics around it, but that's roughly why bigger is better. And we think it's big enough that the leakage of heat out of it will be replaced by the fusion heat, and it will just cook itself. And so sometime around the mid-20s will be the historic shots where you've got the first self-sustaining fusion reactions happening. The demonstration that you can do fusion at the scale and the power of a real power station, but of course it's not a real demonstration that you can make electricity at a cost you want to pay for it. 
So the aim, and the European Fusion Programme has an aim, the Chinese Fusion Programme has an aim to get electricity before 2040. But the European Fusion Programme has an aim at this point to get electricity from fusion by 2040. You will note that is 30 years away. Um, and here's a picture of that can, the conceptual design of that reactor. I, there's nothing really you can learn from staring at this, but just to know that we've done a reasonable job at conceptualizing exactly what we have to do to make that first reactor with proper engineering calculations, etc., what the costs will be, um, you know, what um, all the systems that go around it. ITER will make fusion power, but not electricity. This will make electricity. It will turn that fusion power into electrons that flow down the grid. And it will have to start building around 2030 in order to be delivering electricity around 2040. And so that's the aim at the moment, but we've got to persuade people to give us another large chunk of money in order for it to happen. But it is in the European Fusion Roadmap now. Is it competitive? So if you take that design and you say, I'll, I'll build, you know, build ten, 10 of a kind, what will the electricity cost be per kilowatt hour from that design after you've built 10 of a kind. And you should take this with a bit of a pinch of salt, because as you probably realize by now, I'm a fusion advocate, right? So take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. But it is a serious calculation of what we think the energy cost will be. What I take from this is that the energy cost per kilowatt hour of fusion is competitive with the others. I wouldn't take very seriously the actual numbers, because at this point, we've never built this thing, and we don't know how reliable it is, we don't know what will break, we don't know how long the materials will last in that environment, those things. We have estimates of them, we have calculations of them, but you know, you know, engineering is only so good, physics is only so good. But what it does say is it's not, you know, a thousand cents a kilowatt hour, this is cents a kilowatt hour. It's in the ballpark of what you will need to be competitive on the electricity market at that time. Okay, so that was very encouraging. We did this in, um, in, uh, in the end of the 90s. Um, and the estimates were updated in 2006 to uh, more modern estimates of what it is. But since we're in the ballpark of where we need to be and make uh, competitive uh, electricity waste. Making any kind of energy has some kind of waste. You have to make some kind of structure, you have to make some kind of material, etc. Um, and fusion has the advantage that the amounts of material we, we use are very, very small. And the actual, if you look to that reaction at, at the beginning, the end product is helium. Normal helium that you could fill children's balloons with. If that were our only waste, it would be marvelous. Uh, in terms of a PR coup, it would be fantastic. Um, but actually, the other thing that happens is you produce a neutron. And that neutron can bombard the structure around which you make your fusion reactor. You know, the walls, the magnets, all the structure. And it can make radioactivity in the wall. There's no intrinsic radioactivity left over from the reaction itself, but the walls could become radioactive. Now, here's a picture of what's called radiotoxicity to ingestion. 
I will explain what that means. It basically means how much you can eat before you get very sick. Um, and this is time since shutdown of your reactor on the bottom. Um, so what happens is you run your fusion reactor for 60 years or 80 years or something like that. You shut it down and you're left with a structure that's somewhat radioactive. And when we first did these calculations, we just put ordinary steels in it. And we said, what will happen to ordinary steels? Unfortunately, what happens is the little impurities in ordinary steel, nickel, for instance, become nasty radioactive things when bombarded over that period of time. So we designed some special steels that would be what we call low activation. They wouldn't produce much radioactivity. So at the end of the operation of your, these were five different fusion reactor designs, you're left with this amount of radiotoxicity, right? It doesn't matter what the units are exactly, but that, that amount of radioactivity. The lines at the top are fission reactors. And because of the actinides produced in fission waste, they decay, well, the, the actinides don't decay uh, fast at the beginning, those are the fission products, but then there's this very, very slow decay of the, the waste that's left over from the fission reactor. What happens to fusion is it drops very dramatically. And after about 200 years, well, I say 200, it's more like 300, I suppose, it's the same radioactive level as coal. Right? Same radioactivity as a lump of coal. And so that's a, a, a distinct advantage, because you could imagine storing what's left over from your reactor for 250, 300 years, and then putting it into ordinary landfills. So we're getting somewhere. We have a design, we have a plan, but you know, will it work that way? We have to see. This is going to be a historic experiment. We'll actually do fusion at an industrial scale. Actually, I should give the ad for Cullum first, which is in 2015, we're going to do fusion again at Cullum, and we're going to break the world's fusion records at that point. But JET is simply not big enough to do self-sustained fusion. And that's why ETA is so historic. It'll be the first time you can actually sort of switch on your fusion device, get it up to temperature, and it will cook itself. That will be a demonstration that scientifically fusion is really possible. A demonstration that it is economic has to wait. And it will require another in, you know, big injection of cash to get the first actual electricity producing reactor going and really understanding is it reliable? You know, what happens to the walls over that period of time? How do the engineering systems work? Can we in fact deliver you know, fusion to the masses and power the world? There's no reason why fusion reactors can't be dotted around the country, reasonably close to population centers all over the world and because there are millions of years of fusion fuel in seawater, it could provide a good fraction of the baseload in the future. But I'm not sure when exactly. <laughs> because saying it's 30 years away depends on a lot of things, many of them political. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dean. Henry and I or solar energy. <coughs> is there a point that? Yes, there is a. Uh, <coughs> <coughs>
good, um, good afternoon or good evening. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, photovoltaics, and well, we start at the very large, but we come down to something very, very small during my talk, um, which is the sort of the nano scale. So we start on the, the sort of the, the solar scale, let's say. Why are we interested in solar power? Um, in terms of resources, um, you've mentioned the resource of seawater. Um, well, our resource is obviously the sun, and that's going to be around hopefully for another five billion years, which is probably going to see our society out. And um, at the moment, does this work? Well, I don't know if that's uh, hopefully see our society out. That's what suggests our society's not going to last that long. But um, anyway, the, um, our global demand is about 15 terawatts. So this sphere that goes off the page here represents the total energy um, produced by the sun that's landing on the earth, about 120,000 terawatts. Um, of power, then we're using a very small fraction of that. But unfortunately, at the moment, we're pretty bad at capturing that energy. And um, there's a, there is a pixel there that you can't see um, that <laughs> represents the amount of um, PV power we're producing. 0 0.015, 0 0.015 terawatts less than or around 0.01% of our total power demand produced by photovoltaic energy. So there's a, there's a massive resource. Um, whoops, sorry, does this thing go backwards? There we go. But um, often people ask sort of how efficient are plants? So I thought I'd put it in right at the start. Um, why do we need to make um, sort of a, an artificial photosynthesis or artificial photovoltaic energy when plants do it? Well, plants only produce around um, 100 terawatts, an estimated amount of power plants produce. So if we... Um, cut down and burnt all the green matter growing on the planet Earth, we'd produce about 100 terawatts of um, electricity or power to use, which isn't actually that much larger than the energy demand. So if you imagine how much of the Earth's surface we'd have to dedicate to just to growing plants if you want to crop it for straight-off combustion, um, it's not that feasible. In comparison, this map represents some... Um, that's the Earth and the colours of the flux, the solar flux, so if you, if you stand out on a bright day in the middle of um, about now, basically, end of June, June here, you've got about 100 or 1 kilowatt per square meter. Um, so the, the day and year averaged intensity in the Sahara Desert is about 0.35 kilowatts um, per square meter. In the UK, it's somewhat less, but still around 150 watts or thereabouts, 0.15 kilowatts per square meter. But notably, these black dots, whoops, Sorry, this is um, getting used to this controller. These black dots are the area we'd need to cover with PV power at 8% efficiency to get our, well, that's actually 18 terawatts electrical. So it's not 15% of the Earth's surface. It's, in fact, 0.07% of the Earth's surface, so a relatively small fraction. And it, um, if we choose it in the right places, it's not going to make much difference. Actually, one of, um, one of the fellow fellows in college asked me how, how this would change the global warming of the Earth, if we did in fact put black dots all over the surface of the Earth, surely it would heat up. And I must admit, I haven't done the calculation yet, and I should do it, but yes, it will change the albedo of the Earth, but in that small amount, I presume it's in the noise, but um, maybe Nick's done these calculations, I don't know. I should do it, and I'm just to, to, to quiet and down that kind of voice. But it is something you do have to consider everything, and photovoltaics is certainly not zero impact, depending on where you put it, it will change the local environment but it's probably one of the least impacted done carefully. Um, so why don't we have PV? We've got technologies. I haven't described all the different technologies. We've got technologies which range in efficiency from 43% down to 1% or 2%. 
Why can't we use some of these, these very efficient photovoltaics and make power? The main problem is that it's too expensive. It's still about eight times more expensive than conventional um, oil. This might have been sort of is between five to eight times the cost. It's obviously coming down. Um, but if we wanted to produce our power all by photovoltaics, we'd have to take a cut in our um, standard of living. And in fact, we spend about 10% of our um, expendable income on power in the West, typically. And if you increase that power value by around eight times, that's obviously going to lead to a certain level of poverty, and certainly in more developing countries. Um, so the other issue is we need to produce a heck of a lot of it. So it's a relatively small fraction of the Earth's surface, but it's still a fraction of the Earth's surface. And if you want to manufacture something at that scale, you have to produce a lot. And in fact, if we want, in the next 10 years, if we want to be producing 10 terawatts of power from a 10% efficient solar cell, um, we need to manufacture 110 square kilometers a day. So that's a factory about 100 meters wide producing PV panels the length of the UK every single day. So it's a, it's a tall order. Um, <coughs> done some back-of-the-envelope calculations on a, uh, the amount of newspaper we print in the UK, and it's probably about 100 square kilometers. So if you consider each household has about 10, um, 10 square meters of broadsheet or something, it's actually a heck of a lot. So it's not infeasible that we can manufacture on this scale. It's just a case of finding the right materials and the right system. Newspaper printing is easy. If we could make semiconductor devices in a, a method more akin to that, then that would be more suitable. So um, now I'm going to sort of tell you about what we do here in Oxford and what we're, we're, the technology we're trying to work on and develop, and what our objective and sort of, um, aims are. We want to develop a new generation of photovoltaics that can deliver this low-cost, large-area um, manufacturing and produce power that's reliable, affordable, and is going to last for a long time. You can produce an efficient solar cell if it just lasts for a day. It's no good for anyone. The longer it lasts, the better. And um, the other objective, or, or linked in with this, is to try to integrate PV into buildings so that we actually um, produce power where we use it. This isn't a, any PV cells. These are pretty adornment of um, some architectural glass on the biochemistry building. Um, next door to the physics building, but um, our solar cells look quite similar to this, and this is the sort of idea that we're, we're aiming for. Um, what is building integrated photovoltaics, or where do we want to go with this? Um, this represents conventional photovoltaics, the sort of bolt-on is the term <laughs> used, where they're just stuck on a, a root or, or put on your, your slanted root. And building integrated photovoltaics is where the PV is actually put into the infrastructure of the building. Conventionally, this is an example of BIPV, where there's a, an internal area that's roofed. And in these roofs, there's solar panels that let through light. They're what we call semi-transparent, but it generates power. And this building is self-sustainable on its photovoltaics. You can see there is quite a large area of roof to, um, to usable space, let's say. Um, this is a close-up of what current BIPV looks like. In fact, what it is, is it's a load of silicon cells that are sandwiched between two sheets of glass. And it's semi-transparent because the light comes through the holes. So it's actually got limited... It, it's good, it works, it's quite expensive, but it's got limited architectural appeal. So if we can make a new technology that, that is more versatile, and this would be much more readily adopted, and this is one of the targets that 
we're working for. This is another example of a, of a very attractive open space where there's lots of natural light. And this is the um, uh, building in Hearn. And this one produces about 1,000 kilowatts peak as the rate of power. And that building is self-sustainable. So it's feasible to make large public buildings, um, commercial buildings that are self-sustainable through photovoltaic power in northern Europe. Um, the current PV market, so there's sort of two angles to this talk. One is um, trying to produce power to save the world, and one is trying to actually get a feasible photovoltaics industry going, and then from that produce power to save the world. Um, <laughs> the current PV market in total is around 20 gigawatts, and that's about $20 billion. It's set to grow at about 40% a year, um, but the, the growing market is not those sort of conventional bolt-on PV, but building integrated PV. And this is a marker report that shows that building integrated PV in total will be about $17 billion, around 17 gigawatts by 2017. So this is a sort of a, a rapid increase in the adoption of it. And this is assuming conventional technologies. So of course, if disruptive technologies can come in, make it much more appealing to put PV on buildings, and this should hopefully be accelerated. Um, to give you an idea of the cost of photovoltaic power, so I'm also being a bit of a salesman to a low-cost technology that isn't yet proven, but the sort of stuff that we're working on. Um, this is the, the different technologies in photovoltaics. Um, CSI is crystalline silicon, and that's produced at about $1.25 per watt peak. So the way photovoltaics are costed, uh, how many watts do you produce per dollar um, that you generate when you put the cell, per dollar that you cost in manufacturing when you put the cell under full sunlight? It's nominal that around grid parity should be around half a dollar per watt peak. So all these solar cell technologies are uh, a little way off grid parity. Um, and that's the, the price that you pay for your electricity in your home. Because the other advantage of produ producing power in the building is you're competing with the price you pay for it, not the price it costs to manufacture or to generate power from the power station. Um, the the low-cost technologies that I'm going to talk about, uh, we've calculated them at lower efficiencies to be under this and to work their way consecutively down as we increase the efficiency and performance. Um, so now I'm going to actually talk a bit about the technology itself, the sort of stuff that we put into our devices and the sort of challenges we have in the, the development of the science. Um, the materials we use, uh, metal oxides, um, so uh, without um, sort of coining a phrase or anything, but um, uh, metal oxides are used in toothpaste, for instance, pigments in white paint, they're very abundant and um, very low cost. Um, dyes, any dye can be used to, to absorb sunlight, and if it's chemically structured so that it sticks on the surface of the metal oxide, once it absorbs sunlight, you have an electronic charge is put into the metal oxide, and that generates charge carriers in a photovoltaic system. That's quite similar to how photosynthesis works. It doesn't have metal oxides, but has different organic molecules all tethered together, so one absorbs light and the charge transfers to the other in a cascade. And then we, at the other side of the dye molecule, we stick a hole transporter or an electrolyte. This is an example of an electrolyte <coughs> that transports the positive charge away from the dye. So um, without getting too technical, this is an energy level diagram. Um, the higher in energy, that represents voltage in essence that you can get out of a system. So the dye 
when it's when it's in the dark, the energy of the dye is down here, and you shine light on it, and it increases the energy of the, an electron, an electronic charge in the dye. That can then transfer across into the metal oxides that, that's at a slightly higher energy. And we can now collect this charge from the metal oxide by contacting it to a metallic electrode, and that means we get electronic charge that's increased in voltage from where it was when it was in the ground state. Um, I don't want to see eyes closing and um, people switching off, so I'm not going to dwell on this too long. Um, the charge goes around the circuit, lights a light bulb, or turns on your air conditioning, or charges a battery for your car, and goes back in the other side. And um, basically, it transfers onto a, a, what we call a redox-active electrolyte, which, which electronically active, if you like, and travels through it and goes back to the dye. So once the dye has been excited, it's actually left positively charged and can't contribute to the solar um, conversion efficiency anymore. And it has to wait till a, an electron comes back through and goes back on it. Then it's neutralized, then you, that electron can be excited again. So you could consider this a light pump, where you keep pumping the charge up, it goes around, does some work, and comes back and sits there waiting to be pumped again. Um, if you cut a solar cell in half, it might look something like this. We have um, uh, this, these, this whitey gray sort of region represents the metal oxide. The, it, it looks a bit like a sponge, and we filled it with jelly, if you like. And that jelly is the hole transporter, or the, uh, the electrolyte. Um, the reason why we have a sponge is because on the surface of this metal oxide, we absorb dye onto the surface. And if you take just a very thin sheet, a flat layer of dye, it doesn't absorb very much light. There isn't very much of it. If you imagine if you get a sponge and stick it in a bucket of dye, it comes up very dark. If it was a red dye, for instance, it'd come up dark red. So the idea is we have a large surface area, and that's a lot of area for the dye to stick on. And then we have a lot of area <coughs> to absorb sunlight. So the challenges are getting the right structure, the right surface area to absorb light, having um, the dye that's absorbing enough sunlight that generates charges effectively, and then we get to get all the charge or collect the charge out of the device. And this is just a little, little panel to show an example of all the different colors that we can make our solar cells, and they can be semi-transparent. So this opens up endless possibilities for integrating these type of technology into buildings. Um, I'm going to talk about the different, in essence, if I just go back on, the different aspects of the solar cell. Oops, sorry, no, right. The, um, the light absorbers, the metal oxides, and then the hole transporters. Um, so for light absorbers, we can use organic dyes, such as that shown here. This is actually a zinc porphyrin molecule, which is quite similar to chlorophyll in plants. Um, or we can use metal, oh, sorry, um, <coughs> semiconducting small nanoparticles. This particle might be a few nanometers or five nanometers across, and then a nanometer is, um, well, it's uh, <coughs> one billionth of a meter, so very, very small. Um, one of the interesting aspects of uh, semiconductors, when you shrink them to a small size that's um, shorter than the, the radius or the delocalization length of an electron in that material, the electronic properties start changing. And here we show the luminescence, the light emitted from a series of nanoparticles that are all made of the same material, but they're changed in size, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and the energy of the light emitted gets higher in energy, and that means the light that gives off goes more to the blue, from the red to the blue region of the spectrum. And this means there's lots of tunability, so you can very easily tune the electronic properties of the semiconductor to optimize it for solar light harvesting and 
energy conversion. Um, just to give you another example of the, what we do with the oxides, so I showed in the first slide a random assembly of what we call little nanoparticles to make this sponge-like structure. But actually, within that oxide, we need to transport the electronic charge out of the device. This is a picture here of the nanoparticles. And when an electron's transferred into the metal oxide, it basically rattles around these nanoparticles and has to transfer to the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. And it has to go through about a thousand hops to get to the electrode to be collected. And in this time, it has the chance of being lost by a recomb recombination, recombining with the hole that it was left on the bottom of the die, let's say. Um, so we can speed up the electronic transport, the efficiency of these devices should be improved. And one thing we're doing, working on to do that is to go to more order structures, such as this three-dimensional network that we call a gyroid, or to one-dimensional nanowire. So here we have wires standing right up. You can imagine the charges shuttling up and down these, um, these metal oxide nanowires. Um, the, the third aspect is optimization of the electrolyte or hole transporter. In the, in the research I undertake in um, Oxford is mainly focused on using this system that we call a solid state disensitized solar cell. Um, the workhorse material that we use is this small molecule. And I'm just going to present to you now, now this is, you, I've probably been a bit too technical already, I'm feeling. I'm just going to present to you maybe slightly more technical on one slide of how we get this material in. So there's a big challenge. We start with a, a hard sponge that's this white thing that's the metal oxide. And we want to fill it with another solid and get full penetration and full um, connectivity of the two phases. But how do we get a solid into a solid porous sponge? Well, actually, we start from um, a solution. So we mix this solid into a solvent when it's liquid. So it's like a paint. It's very much like a paint. And then we cast it on the top, and we let the solvent evaporate out, and we hope that the solid will concentrate down into the pores. So um, for the technical slide, well... It's not really technical. There's not an equation anyway. Um, <laughs> sorry, I could have put one up. <laughs> so we, we try to work out how does this happen. Um, there's quite a lot of um, literature on how do you get liquids and solids out of porous membranes from the oil industry. But there's less on how do you put it in, although there is quite a bit for energy storage as well. Um, but here we start with a mesoporous film that's represented by these white dots covered in the red dye. We soak it in a solution. The solution fills the film, but we only start with 15 volume percent of the solution filled with our molecular semiconductors or, or solid semiconductors. As the solvent, first of all, you start spinning it or you coat it, and that gives you a film of a fixed thickness of, let's say, 7 micrometers thick at 15 volume percent. As the solvent evaporates out, imagine you're losing solvent molecules, so the concentration is increasing in the, the liquid below. <coughs> so it's gone from 15% concentration, it gets more and more concentrated. Because the solvent only leaves from the top surface, it's most concentrated at the top and least concentrated at the bottom. That's actually opposite to what you want. In principle, you want to try to get the, the solid conductor into the bottom first and then fill from the bottom up. But actually, it's getting more concentrated there. And at some point, this top layer gets so concentrated that it gels. And then you don't get any more hole transporter going into the porous film, and you're left with what we call a capping layer, and then the porous film is filled, but it's only filled to the concentration at which the solvent was at when the top layer gelled. So, um, surprisingly enough, we can actually get quite 
high filling fractions, up to around 60 or 70 percent. And you might think, well, that means the solar cell can only be 60 or 70 percent efficient at getting the charge out um, for absorbed photon. But actually, we've done some further work with polymers. So, so for <coughs> semiconducting polymers, these are long chain molecules that um, that are very good at transporting charge along the polymer chain, but they're not so soluble, and it's quite challenging. The polymer chain might be around 60 nanometers in length, and the pores are only 20 nanometers in size. So there was a, a long time in the academic field of this area, it was thought that polymers don't go into these films. And the, the reason was, if you look at this cross-section here of a mesoporous film, it still looks porous here in the bottom, then you've got a solid layer of polymer left on the top. But actually, if you do um, element, elemental analysis, we're using a polymer here that contains sulfur atoms. And here we're looking at the sulfur signature in a cross-section through um, transmission electron microscopy. And, um, and here you can see this blue is the sulfur. So actually, the polymer that's in the pores does penetrate right down to the bottom. And there's even elongation. I'm being, I'm being slightly artistic here in my interpretation in a scientific audience. I don't pretend that we know there's elongation of the polymer chains, but this looks and seems to suggest there's elongation of the polymer chains here. And um, you can imagine that offers quite a good pathway for charge conduction out of the device. And in actual fact, even with as little as 10 volume percent of the pores filled, we can get perfect, almost perfect, 98% efficient charge collection out of the device. So it's very effective with very small amount of material in the porous structure. That was... um. Well, I guess this is slightly technical. Hurry <laughs> 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 um, me along if you like. Um, as well as uh, making the structure correct with the right with, with materials, we need to make them with the right materials, and the electronic properties of the interface have to be exactly correct. So this is an example. This is a transmission electron microscopy image of tin oxide nanoparticle. In fact, these lines, they're the lattice plane. So if you look really closely, you can actually see individual atoms here of the tin oxide. Now, if you mix this into one of the solar cells, so you stick the dye on the surface and put the whole transporter in, it barely works at all, and our external quantum efficiency is about 2%. So I'll just take a step aside. When we talk about general efficiency for a solar cell, we talk about power conversion efficiency. How many um, watts of electrical power do you produce per watt of some solar light coming into the device? And that ranges between 10 to 40%. The best device is around 40%. When we talk about quantum efficiency, we talk about how, how many electrons or electrical charge do you produce per photon absorbed. So how much quanta of charge do you produce per absorbed photon? And that can be up to 100%. So, um, but here we're at 2%, so you're never going to get an efficient solar cell with 2% quantum efficiency. But if we just coat it with a very thin layer of magnesium oxide, which is an insulator, so we put a tiny layer, just a molecular layer of insulator, between the n-type, the electron-transporting metal oxide, and the light-absorbing dye, then the quantum efficiency rockets up to 85%. And in fact, in terms of per-absorbed photon, this is 100% efficient, uh, generating an absorbed photon to collect charge. So just a tiny little adaptation of the interface can make a huge difference, and clearly this is an area that's um, very sensitive for investigation. Um, uh, another example of an interface treatment is not using another inorganic material, but to treat it with an organic material. This is another TEM of a metal oxide nanoparticle. And usually we just put a dye sensitizer, a dye molecule on the surface. But if you put a dye molecule on the surface, 
and then use, instead of a transparent hole conductor, use a hole conductor that also absorbs light, you might hope that you can get charge generated from light absorbed in this material and light absorbed in the dye, and it would work. But if you make a solar cell out of this system, you get the response of this black curve. You get good, good um, efficiency where the dye absorbs, but where the polymer absorbs here in this red region of the spectrum, you get no performance at all. And now if you mix this dye molecule with another molecule that's actually an electronic scepter, so this, this will take electrons off the polymer, then you can find that you can absorb light in the dye and generate charge through that means, or you can absorb light in the polymer and the electronic charge tunnels through this specific molecule into the metal oxide, and then you see you start to get um, efficiency from light absorbed in the polymer as well. So um, there's a lot of scope to play around with the surface as well. Okay, there we go. The final thing I'll just discuss is I've talked about absorbing light in dye molecules or semiconductors. There's another family of materials that, that interact very strongly with light, and that's metallic nanoparticles. So a metal film, if you couple light into the surface of a metal film, you can, well, let's take a step back. When you absorb light, what do you do? A photon comes in and it makes an electronic transition in the material. It moves electron to a higher energy. And that usually involves a few electrons in the process, and it's considered a single electronic transition. Um, in metals, you can collectively excite all the electrons in the surface of the metal together, and it's called a surface plasmon mode. And because there's hundreds of electrons involved in this transition, it interacts very, very strongly with light. In flat films, if the light comes in at a specific angle of a specific energy, this can happen. But the advantage of making the, light, the, the metallic structure, if you give it curvature on a radius that's smaller than the wavelength of light, you can actually couple these modes into, from plane waves. So white light can come in and it can be coupled to the surface plasmon modes, these collective excitation of electrons in the metal nanoparticle. And these, a small metal nanoparticle can have an absorption strength of around a million times as strong as a single dye molecule. So it can be very much more enhanced. And there's a big challenge in the field of all photovoltaics as to how can we use these metal nanoparticles or metal nanostructures to absorb light, absorb, absorb light harvesting in thin film semiconductors. So it's very relevant to the sort of materials we're working with. It's actually more relevant to the really expensive um, materials used for conventional thin film photovoltaics, because if you can reduce the material thickness by, in essence, using a light harvesting antenna, then um, that's a good thing. But there's a slight um, caveat, that is, if you stick metal into the middle of a solar cell, you basically short-circuit the device inside, and it doesn't work. So we came up with a um, very simple um, solution that I don't quite understand why um, no one else has done this before, but, well, let's coat the metal in an insulator then, and then it won't short-circuit the device. So we um, coated the, the metal with a thin layer of silica, which is basically um, glass, so it's transparent to the optical field, so we still get the <coughs> optical enhancements, but it insulates it electronically. Now, this had been done before, but no one had tried to put these type of nanoparticles into a solar cell, and we see that you can get good current enhancements with this type of um, system. It's still in the very early days, and it's probably going to, as far as our technology, it'll probably be generation three, four, or five, rather than generation one, but it's um, a, a good means to enhance the light absorption and efficiency in the solar cell. So just to finish up with, um, the previous speaker talked about 2030, 2040, for when we expect to see um, 
see power generation. There is conventional photovoltaics out today. It's producing power. It's actually over. I believe it overtook um, new PV at 10 gigawatts last year. Overtook new new nuclear fusion. Fusion. <laughs> Um, so, it, so it's, it's actually it's overtook new nuclear fusion a while ago. <laughs> okay, I'm okay. waiting. For that. <laughs> but we hope for these new technologies. We're getting uh, increasing momentum all over Europe and, and even in America. Um, and uh, our own activities. We hope that within the next three years, we're really going to start to see commercialization of these technologies coming on board. And then from then, the rate of adoption, the rate of technology advancement really depends on the rate of investment and the rate of, um, of R&D scale-up and uh, processing development. So our goal, which I'm putting in inverted commas near-term goal, um, is to have solar-powered buildings. And we'd really like to see the south-facing side in the northern hemisphere, south-facing the north, southern hemisphere, of every building being predominantly photovoltaics of all different colors, shapes, and sizes and possibly even fully transparent one day. I'll finish there. Thank you.